my fellow Romans, Hannibal is a, oh, sorry, sorry, it's another conference I'm doing next week, the, uh, everything got confused here, um, <clears throat> okay, hopefully everyone can hear me, hopefully everyone's seated relatively comfortably, I know the sun's been going in and out, and uh, we've been enjoying the nice bug life around us, uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to to come to our talk, our, our, our session, we want to do talk about some early episodes of uh, crises with the dollar and tie it in a little bit uh, today. So I want to try to leave as much room for Q&A about what we're covering, about other, you know, about the, you know, what's in store now uh, and, and so on, as this is really the last uh, main session before we uh, before we break, I believe. And I, uh, if uh, the, the, the previous presentation um, was by Dr. Terrell was on, say, right before the Civil War, hopefully, I wanted to talk about the depression of the 1890s and go through that a little bit and discuss, really, this was a, a, a run on the dollar. Uh, prior panics were runs on the banking system. This was an actual run on the dollar. And, and what can this tell us today when we actually have a run on the dollar? If a we would be so unfortunate uh, to be living in the United States one, when there is a run on the dollar. So first of all, what caused this, this run on the dollar? And uh, you know, what ended it? Uh, why was this uh, depression so serious? And, and, and what relevance uh, you know, is, is there uh, today? And what I want to argue is that this depression was a normal Austrian business cycle theory, uh, but superimposed on this was an actual run on the currency. And people were not just redeeming their banknotes for dollars, but they were redeeming their dollars for gold. There was this big threat of, of silver, and people were worried about, will the dollar be able to be redeemable in gold? And this was an example of capital flight. If anyone has, has lived in a country that capital flights occurred in, uh, this is very problematic. It's, it's once people lose confidence, it's very hard to get it back. In that, well, in the modern world, if we're not on a gold standard, there's no threat of silver convertibility. But if there were to be a, a run on the dollar and capital flight, we could expect a lot of the same things that happened in uh, the 1890s, which is a reduction in savings, um, elevated interest rates, uh, all sorts of issues that led to a prolonged period of stagnation. And in fact, really a double dip uh, depression. So, uh, so just to briefly speak about the time of the Civil War, what was the banking system like? Well, there was a national banking system, the National Banking Acts of 1863 to 1865. A central bank traditionally has a monopoly on note issuance and serves as a banker's bank. All right, but what we mean by that is banks can't issue notes and other banks store their reserves at the central bank. And during the Civil War, Congress created a quasi-central banking system of national banks. These national banks had a monopoly on uh, the issuance of banknotes because there was also a prohibitive tax on the issuance of banknotes by the state banks, banks that were chartered by the states as opposed to the federal government. And... Various banks, uh, national banks and state banks could deposit their reserves in so-called central reserve city banks in the United States. Uh, excuse, excuse me, central reserve city banks in New York City. So reserves tended to be concentrated in New York City. 
And we saw a, um, a basically this was the only currency available outside of that was that was created by the government. So as, uh, as was mentioned previously, prior to the Civil War, there was a freedom of entry uh, in banking. Uh, the so-called free banking era, there were problems with this. There were prohibitions on branch banking, which meant if you open a bank in, say, Pennsylvania, you couldn't open a, a, an office in, say, New Jersey, right? You couldn't compete with banks out of state. And this was lobbied for by banks in each state, particularly in the West, right? And this made banks more failure-prone. It encouraged them to concentrate all of the reserves in New York City because they at least could diversify their investments, uh, whereas with this branch banking restriction, they could not. Uh, there were also requirements for banks to guarantee the value of their banknotes uh, by backing them with government bonds, right, to ensure the value of their banknotes ostensibly. However, this really made note issuance very inelastic, and it made these banks unable to respond to the needs of their depositors. The national banking system aggravated these facilities, uh, excuse me, the, these fragilities. Uh, the branch banking uh, prohibitions continued. Reserves were increasingly concentrated in New York City. And national banks uh, were required to insure their banknotes with government bonds. So I mentioned these just to go through a little bit of the, uh, the real history, because normally you hear about, well, before the Federal Reserve, there, were, there was no central bank. And that meant you had all these bank panics caused by the free market, et cetera. And that's simply not true because you had these interventions. You had this government legislation at the federal and the state level. And you, these panics occurred not because of the free market, but because the pyramiding of reserves led to these bouts of credit expansion and several credit-induced booms that the Austrians have explained. And when monetary conditions would tighten, a prominent uh, business would fail, the banking system would implode uh, as several uh, people from around the country tried to redeem their deposits for, um, uh, for, for uh, gold and silver. And then they would, this would spread to other banks, uh, so on and so forth, right? All right, so fast forward a, a little bit. What else was going on? Well, the United States was on a, a de facto gold standard before the Civil War. One dollar was defined as 371.25 grains of silver. A right, grain was an actual unit or 23.2 grains of gold. And what this meant is that uh, you know, one grain of silver was equal to roughly 0 0.0625 grains of gold. All right, we're all taking notes, right? There's going to be a quiz at the end. Oh. Okay. So given that the market valued uh, grains of silver at point, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, grain of silver at point zero six three three grains of gold, the U.S. Mint undervalued silver and overvalued gold. Okay, what do I mean? Why am I doing all this? So when you define a dollar in terms of two precious metals, you're essentially fixing the value of one precious metal in reference to another. Okay, and that's a problem when the market value changes because the supply of one of them increases or the demand for another one decreases or so on. So you can't really have a standard where, there's, where the dollar or currency is defined in terms of two metals. With a fixed exchange rate, it's going to inevitably lead to a shortage of one and a surplus of the other. So this led to Gresham's Law, which is most accurately stated. It's that money overvalued by the government drives out money undervalued by the government. Right? And people hoard and they, send their, they sent their silver abroad and they use gold in transactions. 
How many of you own bullion coins? Any chance a couple people? You might notice that you get some of these from America. They're technically legal tender. They say $20. They say $50, right? Now, why don't you spend that at the grocery store? <laughs> it's because it's tremendously undervalued by the government. No one's going to use that money. You're going to use $50 in cash or with your, your debit card rather than a, a bullion coin that's got a market value of basically $2,000. You would be a fool to do that. Though I think it would be pretty cool one time to dump a bag of silver on the, you know, the cash register and all of that. But when I get more money, I'll do that. So I, I think this is a nice meme. Have you ever seen Pawn Stars? And, and they basically try to continually rip the people off. Oh, your silver is worth 0 0.0633 gold grains. Best I can do is 0 0.0625. This is the U.S. Mint, basically. And by fixing the, the value, they basically it would lead to a de facto gold standard. Now, this was before the Civil War when silver was actually undervalued by the government, right? However, conditions changed because in the 1870s, for a variety of factors, European nations were moving off of silver, they were demonetizing silver, and new supplies of silver were discovered in the West, the so-called Bonanza Kings of Nevada and, 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 and Utah, etc. So that pushed down the value of silver, where even though the exchange rate uh, was roughly the same, um, uh, previously one grain of silver on the market, uh, the exchange rate was very different, uh, can now only buy 0 0.055 grains of gold. So as a result, the United States officially demonetized silver in the mid-1870s. Said no other country's using this. Well, it's less valuable. Why should we do this? And this angered those who want silver coinage to increase the money supply. Uh, most of us, we know of these as the farmers, the so-called populists. However, another interest group I'm talking about in my, my book, Cronyism, that's coming out, uh, was also the silver miners. This might come as a shock to you that they were in favor of making silver coins. So did the farmers have a right to be upset? Historical myth argues that uh, the farmers, the so-called populists, suffered because money was scarce and the, the secular fall in prices increased the real value of their debt burdens. This is why people say deflation won't work. They say, well, it's increasing the value of their debt burdens. Money's tight. It's hard to come by. Did the farmers have a right to be upset? Yes and no. Yes. Well, national banknotes tended to be concentrated in the north the Northeast in particular, and national banks that had high capital requirements, meaning that if you wanted to set it up, you had to have $50,000, $100,000, depending on the city, and that restricted competition greatly. So this limited farmers' access to banking facilities. No, well, the deflation was expected, so that meant that the nominal interest rate on farmers' bank loans actually declined. So why were they upset? Well, they were upset mainly because their income wasn't rising as much as manufacturing workers. My response to that is, is tough. It's the way the market goes. You, you know, no one's giving you a right to, you know, the little house on the prairie. It's not, you know, it's not always a profitable business. Um, so beginning in the late 1870s, the agrarians, they advocate remonetizing silver at the old ratio. Uh, one grain of silver equals 0 0.0625 grains of gold. Uh, and this would have undervalued uh, gold and overvalued silver and put the United States on a de facto uh, silver standard, right? So it kind of got flipped. And the Bland-Allison Act of 1878 meant that the Treasury must purchase uh, 2 to $4 million of silver each month and turn it into legal tender coins. 
Right, this was President Hayes that vetoed this, but Congress override, uh, overrid his veto. Uh, and the problem with this, and here's sort of the relevance, is that this is equivalent to uh, potential devaluation. Because what this meant is that if enough domestic and foreign investors redeemed their dollars for gold or tried to do so, uh, the United States would have to suspend convertibility because they only have silver. And they'd have to adopt the silver standard, which was equivalent to a devaluation. Your dollars would now be redeemable in a less valuable metal. Okay. Um, and the expectation of devaluation could lead to a so-called capital flight. As investors would redeem their government securities, they would redeem their dollars. To, uh, they would pull it out of the United States and they would yank out their savings. And this would be very harmful and this can be very self-fulfilling. When there's an expectation of a currency crisis, a currency crisis will occur. So capital flight results in reduced savings and, and higher interest rates, and it causes general economic stagnation. Okay, so was this likely in the 1880s? No, because of our friend here, Grover Cleveland. Okay, Grover Cleveland was one of those, uh, excuse me, those Democrats who was, who was pro-hard uh, money. He was pro-gold. He contrasted with some of the Democrats, the populist Democrats who were pro-silver. So the Democratic Party had basically laissez-faire advocates and had interventionists. It was kind of a, had schizophrenia at the time. And this reassured, at least Grover Cleveland's presidency, reassured investors because anything Congress might pass, Cleveland would veto. So there was that sort of bulwark, so to speak, against a silver standard. And here's Grover Cleveland. He's doing something important at his desk. I don't know what, signing autographs. It could be anything, okay? So the same could not be said about Cleveland's successor, Benjamin Harrison. Uh, he's the grandson of William Henry Harrison. Uh, I believe he's Thomas DiLorenzo's favorite president because he, he died about a month in office. So he gave a speech out in the rain when he was in his late 60s, tried to act like a tough guy, and he got sick. So, you know... Not too much about his politics, but he was there. Little damage was done. So in the 1880 election, uh, Harrison, he campaigns on a bimetallic platform. He tries to appease, appeal the silver rights. And when he's president, the, the union admits six new states. These are all silver states. There's like 10 people who lived in each of them. Uh, but they get two senators. So you got Montana, you got North Dakota, you got South Dakota, you got Wyoming, you got Washington, you got Idaho. And in 1880, Republicans passed the protectionist McKinley Tariff and the inflationist Sherman Silver Purchase Act, where the Treasury had to double its purchase of silver. And this is very much a quid pro quo. Northeastern manufacturers, they said, look, you give us the tariff, we'll give you the silver. Westerners, they said, okay. So more important for us is the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. Now, this would be the equivalent in the United States of em embarking upon a very inflationist policy that really worried investors because what this meant is that the chance of default went heavily up, it went sharply up. And from 1892 to 18, excuse me, 1890 to 1892, the nation's gold stock declined 7% as people were taking their gold abroad. At the same time, the national banking system was inflating the money supply by 18%. You had, uh, other policies that were that were definitely worrying. The Treasury had imposed a stiff fee on exporting gold bars, which of course, of course, worried investors and they wanted to export gold even more. And in 1892, the Senate passes a free coinage bill, 
uh, free coinage of silver. Now, it did not get any farther, but just the fact that this one chamber, this one chamber that, bear in mind, got you know, a whole bunch of new pro-silver senators was able to pass for this. This led to uh, that really investors were worried. So fast forward to the panic. Uh, in early 1893, a panic uh, hits the country. Prominent companies failed. And there's a run on nation's banks as citizens try to redeem uh, they try to redeem their bank paper uh, for for specie, and you could say, okay, they, you know, that we could talk about that. That's a healthy sort of contraction. At the same time, there's a run on the dollar and shipments of gold abroad. The Treasury's gold stock declined by 25 percent from 1892 to 1893, and this represents a very harmful decline in domestic savings because these were shipped abroad. Okay, so if a currency crisis were to hit the United States, this is what you would see. You would see people not necessarily redeeming their dollars, but they would ship their dollars abroad. The savings would be sucked out of the country. All right. Uh, I don't know if we need to show this chart. We can go back to that. So Cleveland secures repeal of the Sherman uh, Act in June, and the nation's gold stock recovers a little bit. Uh, But repeal did not restore confidence. And in 1894, gold starts to flow out again. Now, why was this? Cleveland repealed the act. Well, the problem was the populist Democrats were taking over the Democratic Party. And they were getting stronger in the 1894 midterms. And uh, they were also looking like they were going to be able to nominate uh, their own candidate, William Jennings Bryan, who I believe uh, was mentioned earlier this morning. And that was a problem because that would drastically increase the chance of default, especially because the Republicans were going to nominate William McKinley, who had a pro-silver record. So when both candidates are in favor of silver, this is definitely not looking good for the, 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 the sanctity of the dollar. Now, what happens? All right, so our friend J.P. Morgan, it's a typo, it's J.P. Morgan of J.P. Morgan & Company. He secures a pro-gold plank in the Republican Party. He invites uh, Mark Hanna, who is McKinley's campaign manager, onto his yacht, the Corsair. So I think that's kind of interesting. You know, you have some high-profile deals Come to my yacht, right? We'll talk it over. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. And the Republican Party became pro-gold. So all the bankers, all the industrialists, they support McKinley over Brian. Brian gets smashed. The gold standards reaffirmed. Gold starts to flow back into the country. And you start to see a recovery in 1897, right? It was due to the gold standard. There was a threat on the gold standard. And you had to reassure investors, right? So what does this episode teach us? Why did I, why did I just go through this? Um, well, currency crises, this is really one of the few that you've had in United States history of a legitimate run. We saw this a bit in the Great Depression, and there was a potential, uh, uh, this could have potentially happened in the early 1970s, but Nixon closed the gold wind- window. Uh, currency crises are extremely harmful to economic activity. They destroy investment. Uh, They yank savings out of the country. It leads to a tremendous amount of uncertainty. You can see multiple contractions. It's very, very hard to stop a run on currency. The only way you can do it is with very contractionary monetary policy that puts more short-term pressure on the banking system. And it's for obvious reasons that we all know it's politically unpopular. All right. So could a similar episode happen uh, to the United States? In the 2020s, yes and no. All right, uh, all right. Well, well no, uh, you know, 
No, well, we're obviously not on a gold or silver standard. We're on a fiat standard. And there's nothing to suspend convertibility of. You can't run on the dollar. You can run on the banking system, but you can't run on the dollar. You go to the bank, you, you ask, I'd like to redeem my $20. They'll give you 20 singles, right? There's nothing that you can get from them. But yes, if investors expect the dollar to depreciate relative to other monies, other currencies, right? Maybe Bitcoin, uh, other types of uh, things that are used as money, et cetera. Then they're going to, you know, they're going to convert their dollars into those monies, and then they're going to transfer their savings to other countries, right? So you would—that's the process you would see, and we have seen this in the modern world of fiat money. It's just mainly happened to third world countries. We haven't seen this in the United States, but if we were to see this, once you lose the confidence of the people, it's very hard to get it back. Okay, and this is the big problem. So just to conclude. The 1890s depression was caused by a credit-induced boom aggravated by a currency crisis. This currency crisis was heavily linked to the political situation. Uh, and currency crises are extremely da damaging. Thank you so much. I hope you liked our talks. <laughs>